This is Andrea Mica from Privacy for Cars. And windshields don't stop dragons either. Your vehicle is in the spotlight of today's podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and today we have episode 237 for September 13th, 2021. For those of you in the U.S., I hope you had a fun and long and productive and happy Labor Day weekend last week. And even though it's not officially fall, it kind of this always kind of feels like fall, like after Labor Day. The weather's starting to cool off a little bit, and pretty soon those leaves are going to start turning. And I know, <laughs> I know it must be fall because I'm already seeing Halloween candy for sale in the stores, which is just crazy. And I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world, but man, in the U.S., like all the seasons just run into one another, especially if there's something to be sold uh, in relation to that holiday, which again, in the U.S., we find ways to sell and market stuff for every single major holiday. And the really goofy part is that once Halloween is over, and honestly, if you keep an eye out, sometimes it's like the day before Halloween or the couple days before Halloween, you'll start seeing Christmas stuff being put out. And it's like, come on. Oh, well, anyway, that's the world we live in. Uh, so anyway, today we have got an interview and it's really an amazing interview and it's so important and it's so interesting. And it's something that I think a lot of people have not really thought about. And that is privacy with respect to cars. And so just, just stop for a minute and think about the ways in which your car or cars that you drive might have information. And obviously the, the one that most people would should immediately be thinking about is when you connect your phone to the car. And, you know, most people probably do this for cars that they own because modern entertainment systems can, you know, help you dial numbers or see who's calling you. Or in some cases, if you're using CarPlay or Android Car AirPlay or whatever they call that, the Android version of that, you know, you can actually, you know, make and receive calls, you know, through your vehicle and make and receive texts and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and a lot of it's safety features. A lot of that makes it, you know, more hands-free, right? Which is great. But in order to do that, in order to display that it's mom calling or your spouse or, uh, or whatever, it, you need to share data from your phone to your vehicle. And wait, so now, all right, right. So now you own the vehicle, you've done this. And what you might not realize though, is that you, <laughs> that data is going to be there when you get rid of your car. However, you get rid of your car, not just if you sell it, but if, if it's at an accident and it's totaled, you sign over that vehicle and therefore the data that is contained in that vehicle to your insurance company. But what about cars that you rent? How often do you connect your phone to a rental car? When I was in Hawaii, I connected my phone via a lightning to USB cable to my car so that I could listen to the music. And I honestly wasn't even thinking about data that might have been transferred in that process. And I, I'm not sure what data might have been transferred in that particular way, you know, but certainly if I had paired my phone over Bluetooth, which I explicitly did not do for the rental car, it would have shared perhaps my contacts and text messages and maybe geolocation. And what happens to that data when I turn my car in? Well, probably nothing, which means it's still there for the next person who rents my car to potentially poke around in or the rental car company or, you know, whoever has access to that vehicle. And that's just your phone. Cars are computers on wheels, multiple computers on wheels. There are lots of individual computers within your car doing various tasks. Many of them are interconnected. And cars are now almost 
all of them coming off the line today are connected to the cellular network by default, even if it's a service you didn't pay for. Because car makers and, and, and all the people now associated with things going on in your car want to get data from your vehicle, either for marketing purposes or research purposes or safety purposes. There's lots of reasons, but there's just a ton of data being generated by your vehicle that is now potentially being siphoned off wirelessly without you being able to even see what's going on. So we're going to talk about all of that today and much more. This is a topic that's been on my mind for several months now, and uh, I was trying to find somebody to talk to, and I found the absolute perfect person, Andrea Miko, who started a company called Privacy for Cars. And so he's going to explain to us today what kind of data is being collected, how it's being used, what your rights are associated with that data, all the thing, all the standard privacy things you would think about, and help you understand just how much of a privacy risk your vehicle or any vehicle that you drive has become today. So with that little preface, let's get right to our interview with Andre Miko. Andre Miko is one of the nation's leading authorities on vehicle privacy and cybersecurity. He's also the founder of Privacy for Cars, the first and only privacy tech company focused on identifying the challenges posed by vehicle data. Thanks for coming on the show, Andrea. Thank you, Carrie. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. I've been wanting to do a, a thing on this for a long time, and I'm so glad we got a chance to hook up because I've been looking for somebody to talk about this, and you are absolutely the perfect person. So I cannot wait to ask you a whole bunch of questions. And I think this is something that a lot of people are probably kind of blind to. And I think I don't think it's something worth thinking about. And obviously, after this inter uh, interview, I think they'll be realizing that they should be. <laughs> yeah, well, we often say that the car is the third screen. Everybody thinks a lot about their first screen, the laptop, the second screen, the mobile. Now, by the way, the mobile is becoming the first screen, mm -hmm. but nobody really looks at the driveway as yet another device that is monitoring their activity. And hopefully at the end of today, people will see it differently. Absolutely. I am sure they will. So let, let's get started with what, what sorts of information can I pull from a modern uh, consumer vehicle and how much of this information is shared like explicitly? Like, you know, when I connect my phone, I expect, you know, that I'm going to be sharing some information there, but how much of that information is collected just autonomously or implicitly by the car? You know, I'm sure behind the scenes, it's got a bunch of computers in it. It's got logs, it's got telemetry, uh, those sorts of things. So what kinds of information do, does a modern car ingest or create? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's there's a lot of differences. As you can imagine, cars are evolving rapidly mm -hmm. and with all rapidly evolving technology, the answer changes. So I'm going to be doing some generalizations here, if mm -hmm. you don't mind. But sure. if you have a vehicle with Bluetooth, by the way, they've been around for 20 years. I don't know that people realize mm -hmm. wow. they've been around for this long, right? If you have a vehicle with Bluetooth and you connect over it, or nowadays, if you plug your phone in the USB port, mm -hmm. what most people don't realize is that a lot of data from your phone will automatically migrate inside the car. And sometimes you may get a little pop-up somewhere and say, hey, do you want to transfer your contacts? And maybe you will say mm -hmm. no because it's a rental, but really, there's a lot of other stuff that goes there without really asking you. So let me give you some examples. So of course your contacts will be there, a very detailed log of your calls, the text mm -hmm. messages, including the content of the actual text messages we've seen in a number of cars, all the way up to, you know, with newer vehicles, you can find calendar entries, you have browsing history, you have your, your handle of Twitter and Facebook uh, and some of that activity, uh, photos you've recently taken your, with your mobile, mm -hmm. there's a track record of that, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a long list. And on top of it, 
there's a lot of metadata that is associated with your device, which makes it really easy to re-identify you. The other stuff that the car collects, even without, you know, from your, your own device, is that now cars have uh, very commonly GPS units. Well, so mm -hmm. the breadcrumbs of everywhere you go, that's stored locally. By the way, most people, I think, don't realize that even if you don't say, I want to go to the airport or take me back home in their navigation system, even if they don't use it, the car is still logging a detailed record of where they're going, mm. at what speed they're going, and a lot more, right? which gear they're in, who are the occupants, when was the last time that the right door was open, so you know when huh. a passenger came in or came out. There's a lot of that, the weight of the passengers, right? You have now cars with cameras, not only mm. outside, but also inside. Mm -hmm. And so those cameras are originally used for you know, safety features like trying to keep you on your lanes or making sure you're not distracted. Mm -hmm. But, you know, increasingly there's layers of AI that are being put on it to try to determine, well, which caution are you? Let's read their, their license plates. Mm -hmm. Or are you bored, interested, excited, mm -hmm. angry at the wheel? And all of that, again, is being increasingly logged from cars. So it, it has become a really giant data collecting machine. And in fact, cars collect terabytes of data every year from, from users without most of them really realizing it. Wow. So you mentioned briefly metadata. Uh, and obviously, I think it makes sense when you think about it. Well, if you're hooking your phone up to it, then the metadata around the call, who you called, when you called, how long you talked, and that sort of thing. What What other sorts of metadata might be collected by a car today? And what might be some of the privacy implications around that? Connecting your phone, it means that, you know, you have the unique identifier of your phone stored right there, the name of the device in there. In fact, there's the, there was a very famous story a few years ago of a crime that was solved because the name of the Bluetooth device that was synced hmm. was the handle of somebody on Twitter. And so they figured out who was the person that stole the car, right? Oh, and wow. Literally, there was no data extraction. Literally, they just compared the name of the device with the name of the person and they got a match. Hmm. And we do a lot of audits. I can tell you very, very often we find, you know, first and last names of people being in the descriptor of the phone. Mm -hmm. And from there to, you know, and then you have the home address. And then at that point, you really know who was driving that car. And then, right. you know, everywhere they went, their garage, their codes, you have everything. All, all of this is, you know, very problematic and you need, don't need any technical skills to extract this data. And if you have a little bit of technical skills, of course, you can get a lot more. Right. All right. So you mentioned that some of this started with Bluetooth, uh, but you know, cars have had computers in them for a long time, and and they've been storing some telemetry and other kind of data. So, how long has this been going on? How, like, walk me through a little bit of the the technical history of how long cars have been storing data, and then you know, for the people listening, how are they? How do I figure out what my particular vehicle might be storing about me? That's not a very easy answer to uh, <laughs> for, for that. Uh, first of all, but again, there's there's a lot of variety out there. Originally, as with most things with, with that we'll talk about today, the origin of collecting data was always around creating cars that were safer and with better performance, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, these uh, ECUs, these internal control units that cars have, they multiplied over time so mm -hmm. that the devices in the car could do more things and talk to each other. And then companies started to realize, hold on a second, can we use some of this data for our own internal purposes? And in the beginning was research. 
And then it became marketing. And then it mm-hmm. became, you know, what is truly happening today, which is cars have become just like uh, laptops and phones. They're no longer in the full control of the manufacturer anymore. They are at the centerpiece of an ecosystem where a lot of companies are bringing data, extracting data, analyzing data, and then sharing it with their parties and the third parties of third parties. Mm. And now there's actually an entire economy built around harvesting data from cars and selling it. Mm. Wow. Well, that brings me to the next question. Who who owns this data? I mean, it, yeah. and that's a hard question even on the web today because we all like to think we own our own data, but of course we well, we really don't. But um, you know, okay. So, and there's so many. As we were talking about this, and you and I go emailing back and forth, and I was reading some of the things you pointed to. There are so many different cases you don't think about. Most people think about, okay, well, I buy a car. Oh, well, you know what? Sometimes I lease a car. Hey, you know what? Sometimes I even rent a car. But but that's there's even more cases than that, right? There's sometimes you might drive a company car, or you're you're working for you know FedEx and you have a fleet vehicle, or. Uh, and you've probably got Bluetooth in there, and you're probably connecting your phone to that. It's your it's your car during the day. It's your work vehicle. And then there's even more cases that you you brought up, like what if your car is totaled, and so now it's in a junkyard, or what if it's been repossessed, or what if you had a family car and then you got divorced, and your stalker spouse or whatever got the car, you know. So so there's so many different use cases with these cars. So how do you, how do you determine who owns the data that may have gone with that vehicle? Well, companies like to say that, of course, consumer owns the data, but I think that the reality is a little bit more complex than that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and first of all, the concept of ownership and data is quite not right, right under under the law. Uh, I, I know that you have an international audience, right? So mm-hmm. there's really two big divides in the world. One is you have regimens like in Europe where privacy is considered a fundamental right. And so in those cases, companies are not allowed to legally collect data unless they have a reasonable business motivation and explanation of why the data needs to be collected in the first place. Okay, so European audience today, rest assured, you have a lot more rights and a lot more protections than the rest of us here sitting in the United States. In the United States, for instance, it's more based on contract law, right? Mm. So data is considered uh, something it can be, uh, you can have the rights to, just like this recording, right? Mm. Who owns this recording? Well, you have the rights to it, but then you can decide to share it with other parties, similarly in the United States. And so in the United States, what happens is that as long as companies disclose what data will be collected in the general purposes, and sometimes the general purposes are really general, right? Mm. Very often, those le- this legal language will include and any other purpose that we deem appropriate. Well, that means, mm. you know, we can do whatever we want with it, right? right. Once you sign the contract because you bought a, or leased a car, once you rented that vehicle and you, you signed in that little pad that you're renting the car, once you click yes on an application is connected to your vehicles, et cetera, et cetera, what is happening is that consumers are inadvertently perhaps, but they are agreeing that their data can be harvested and used for a number of purposes that are listed. And again, these purposes can be extremely broad. Mm-hmm. Which, so in reality, everybody can have your data. In fact, today we track over 200 companies that collect, share, market, and broker data collected from vehicles and wow. we're just scratching the surface. Wow. So you, how did I, how did I uh, agree to this? The, the, you know, again, as you mentioned, a lot of privacy protections, is, at least in the U S are around notification and consent. They have to somehow vaguely tell you to do, it, and then you somehow say click accept, which we all do blindly on so many things today. But so did I, 
in your experience, do I generally sign this away when I buy it? Like, is it in the con the paper contracts that I sign or whatever when I buy the car, or is it a pop up on my entertainment system that I just, oh yeah, whatever, okay, and then and then I've done it. A, a mix of those, right? So the pop ups are actually starting to appear now with newer vehicles, which really tells you that the lawyers of the manufacturers have been hard at work to try to collect more and more your consent, right? We can debate whether that's an informed consent mm -hmm. or not. But generally, when you sign a contract with, again, buying a car, entering a lease, you get into an accident and you're signing the contract with the transfer of the ownership, you're transferring the ownership of the vehicle, including anything stored in it, mm -hmm. right? So now you actually your insurance company owns the data <laughs> that you left behind in the car. And, and, and the reason why I think your audience should be concerned is because we know that today in the United States, in average, more than four out of five cars are resold while still containing the data of the previous owner. Oh, wow. If you look at uh, rental car companies, so far 99% of all the cars we ever audited over the years contain the data very often on more than one person, right? I'm sure we all had the experience of, oh man, I need to delete Bob's phone because we ran out of slots in this car, right? There's 25 mm -hmm. phones synced in it and I need to delete somebody so I can sync my own. And so this is a really endemic, very broad issue. It literally affects hundreds of millions of consumers in the United States alone. And, and I think it truly is, this is the biggest problem nobody has ever heard of. Right. Well, okay. So you mentioned these hundreds of companies that are sharing the data. What, what kinds of companies are we talking about? What purposes? Like for instance, some things I was just thinking about. First of all, uh, is this data shared with the car manufacturer? How about the dealer? How about your insurance company? What about law enforcement? Obviously marketing, because that's where <laughs> that is where we're at today. That doesn't really surprise me. Maybe it'll surprise the audience. But what about some of these other entities? Do they have access to this data at all? The answer is yes to all of the above. So look, of course, the car manufacturer will have first dibs to the data. Okay. But for instance, what people don't realize is if you say you use your navigation system, okay? And people on your audience will have all sorts of different systems and some will be more advanced than others. But mm -hmm. if you're getting live traffic updates on your navigation system, that typically comes from a third party. Mm -hmm. They need to get the real-time mm -hmm. geolocation from your car so they can push this information. Guess what? They have the right then to use it. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, you get weather updates. Same thing. You get news updates. Same thing. You want to know what parking spots may be available near you. Again, all of those are nice services to have. Just realize that they, they all come from different third parties and they have their own third parties, which is how your data that you thought was never in the car in the first place now finds itself into tens of databases and then it's going to be shared and shared and shared again until it's literally everywhere. Wow. Okay, so technically, how is this data shared? Like, I know a lot of modern cars have built-in cellular radios because, like, this this mm -hmm. originally was like OnStar and some of these like you know safety features that 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 they had so that if you're in an accident, you could maybe even potentially automatically call someone to your help. But you know, now I think it's built into a lot of cars today, and even if you don't buy the service, like it, it's a hotspotting feature that you can pay for or not, but they're probably going to build it in anyway, and they're probably also using it for their own telemetry, whether you use it for data or not. So. When, when this data is being shared, how how much of it's being shared, like in real time through the cellular radio that might be built into the vehicle, or what about it? Is it like when I bring my car in for service? Is there a, the the OBD, the onboard diagnostic port, or some other similar service ports? Are there are they also siphoning off data at that point as well? Again, yes to all of the above, right? So first of all, nowadays more than ninety percent of the cars that come out of a factory 
come with an embedded cellular collection, right? That's what manufacturers mean by connected cars. And then I think you and I can debate what, whether the definition is correct or not. We mm-hmm. think that the story is a little bit more complex than that. But essentially it means that your car has embedded a cell phone. And that phone is like ET. It's calling home all the time and sending back data, uh, which again goes not only to the manufacturer, but it goes to a number of third parties. Okay. It is, there are some companies where when you do pull into the service bay, um, these, you know, certain franchise dealers have these systems, your car actually automatically connects with the Wi-Fi of the dealership uh, hmm. so that some data can be downloaded. When you do, when you plug in into the OBD2 port, which is that, you know, big port that is typically under the steering wheel somewhere mm-hmm. where you will see your technician sometimes plug in some big devices in there. Mm-hmm. That's really made mainly for maintenance purposes, but they can also go and download data from the car, right? And so whenever the car doesn't have a live connection, there are backups and backups to the backups to try to get information from the car. Again, some of this data is just for maintenance purposes, but some of this data is very personal in its nature, you know, geolocation being probably the most significant example. Wow. So what you say with Wi-Fi, it's automatically like it's built in the system is automatically set to like when, let's say I buy a Ford and I drive up to my Ford dealer's uh, service bay, you're saying that without doing anything, it's that car is close enough. It'll connect to the service bay's Wi-Fi and automatically get diagnostic information. Without naming specific manufacturers, yes, this happens in a number of cases. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> so how they've got a lot of data. Uh, I'm getting more worried. How good well, are they? I'm surprised that you don't know about this because all of this is disclosing the privacy policies. <laughs> oh. I'm informed consumer. <laughs> I'm being right. prestigious here. Right, right. We all read those, right? Um, yeah, don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so how good are they at securing this data? Do you know, do they encrypt this data? Is it encrypted in the car? Is it encrypted while it's being transmitted? Uh, uh, again, it's it, this is where it becomes much, much more gray and difficult to really give you perfect answers. But I can tell you, as far as the data stored in the vehicle, there are very, very few vehicles out there that actually have any sort of encryption. Okay. Mm-hmm. By and large, the data that is stored in the car is going to be stored in the clear. And presumably when it's transmitted out, it's, we can only assume it's going to be transmitted in the clear because, you know, why would they do it any other way? <laughs> Reality is that, you know, how the data flow of the telematics works is very different on a company by company basis. And again, unfortunately, you need to be an insider to really know a lot mm-hmm. of those things. So our this is where our knowledge really starts to be less deep and uh, and it's just a lot harder for anybody i mean it's hard for us you can imagine for the average consumer to know right what's going on right but i can tell you this that we know that because there's a company called upstream they do cybersecurity research for automotive they claim that theft of data and theft of an exploitation of personal information from vehicles is the number one type of cybersecurity threat that is currently happening with automotive companies Wow. So explain, dig that a little bit more. Like, what do you mean? Like, what, yeah, you, they're saying that 36% of all cyber attacks that are affecting automotive companies are really data breaches and invasion of personal information. From the cars themselves or from data that, that's been pulled from cars and stored on some central server or both? From, from, from all of those. Wow. <laughs> okay. So from what you're saying, it sounds like it's pretty easy then to, to hack 
in, into a vehicle either. And, and so if I'm a hacker and I want this data, it, I guess I would probably go for the, the real honeypot. I would want to go if it's been stored in some server somewhere and get a bunch of it. But if I come up to a vehicle, how hard is it for me to, okay, I know this is Terry's car. For whatever reason, I want to know where he's been or I want to see what his contacts are. How hard is it for me to get the data from the vehicle? Do I have to physically? Right. So from the physical vehicle, typically physical access is, you know, not that hard. I mean, think about all the people that had access to your personal vehicle in the last year. Uh, It's probably a lot more than you would want to to admit, right? Mm. And so once you have physical access to a vehicle, some data is just out there in the clear, right? The, the car is not like your phone where you have to enter a pin or, you know, your, your fingerprint or whatever else. Whoever has the keys, the car thinks it's the rightful owner. So all the information is going to be displayed right there and then because the car thinks you're the owner, no matter mm-hmm. whether you are or not, right? So that's, that's issue number one. Some data over time try to be hidden and obscured from casual browsers of vehicle systems. An example would be, you know, text messages. They used to be exposed to anybody. Now they started to put them behind a curtain. What we proved three years ago is that pulling the curtain is actually not that hard. In fact, you know, so we, we showed that how easy it was to fool infotainment systems into believing that the rightful owner wasn't there. So mm. to show all this information to literally anybody. These worked with 26 different makes. And, and when we told the companies, manufacturers, they, well, they never really told us what they did, but, you know, supposedly they started to fix the issue for the cars that had not been manufactured yet. And so, for example, we estimate in the United States there are at least 40 million cars today that anybody could walk to and with some very inexpensive free or free-to-download tools you can go and help yourself to read people's text messages. In fact, I taught my eight-year-old daughter when she was eight how to extract and read mom's text messages from the car, which I think is great parenting. I don't know. What do you think, Harry? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... I, a lot of this stuff is proprietary. I know, I know companies generally don't like to let third parties in. Is there, maybe in the EU, uh, maybe this is, I don't know, maybe this happens there. It, is, are there any third-party vetting of these things from a privacy or security standpoint? Companies sometimes, you know, will hire third parties that, say, do cybersecurity assessment. I think it's far less common for privacy. Hmm. Many companies starting now to have bug bounties, right? Mm-hmm. So if you find a defect, if you find a, a cybersecurity issue, you can contact companies and there's a process you can go through to disclose this responsibly, which by the way, I encourage everybody, if they find something, please say something. The right organization to reach out to is the auto ISAC. So please do that. If there's somebody that is technically inclined to find stuff. But but again, by and large, there are not a lot of external standards or external certification that say, oh, company X is really doing mm-hmm. good things. And, and, and we think that that's a problem because privacy is something that we know that people care about, but it's not something you can walk to a dealer lot, glance at the lot and say, right. oh, I want that one because it has better privacy protections. Right. Nobody can make that assessment. In fact, cars had this issue 30 years ago with safety. You could mm. not go to a lot, glance at the lot and say, I want the safest car 
you could choose, you know, the blue one or, you know, the size that you like because it, it fitted your family, but safety was not visible. And really what it took was an association, a nonprofit called IHS, and then eventually National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to pass criteria for assessing objectively the safety of vehicles to, to have what is now known as the five-star rating, right, for the safety mm, of cars. Mm-hmm. And now you can walk to any car, you can look at the sticker, and you can determine what is the safety of my car. By the way, interesting fact, this year the manufacturers went to National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and asked them to revise the standards because every car is now getting five stars. And so what happens is that when everybody's number one, really nobody is, right? And safety has become something important for companies to appeal to consumers and show that they are better than others. Right. And so what used to be something that they really fought against now has become a source of competitive advantage. Hmm. My hope, and I know that I'm sick of true, believers, true believerism, right? I'm, hmm. I'm, I'm a terminal case of true believerism. <laughs> but I hope that one day, and hopefully it will take less than 30 years because that's how long it took for safety, that privacy will be the same. Yeah, that consumers will want to find cars that protect their privacy, and that companies will compete for privacy. And I think that the you know our job at Privacy for Cars is to make this issue more visible, so that yeah. consumers can be more informed, and consumers can try to 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 do better and get the benefit of being better. Because right now there's really not a lot of incentives. Right. Yep. That brings up another question. And so if if we find a bug, let's say that, that some manufacturer through a bug bounty program, through their own testing says, oh boy, we, we screwed up here. We got to fix this. How is the software in your car updated? Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not, right? So over-the-air updates are really a new, new, new development with vehicles. They're not very common. They're, mm. they're becoming increasingly so, but they're not very common. Keep in mind, the average car on the road in the United States is 12 years old. Okay. Wow. And so back then, as you can imagine, there were zero considerations around privacy. <sighs> right. Uh, today, the number, by the way, is not 100%, but you know, at, at least it's getting better, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it takes a very long time. And so pick the example, right, that I gave you of three years ago, we discovered this big issue with Bluetooth that affected a lot of cars on the road. Well, it turns out that vehicle manufacturers do not even have the obligation to disclose it mm-hmm. to the owners. Because anything that is not an immediate threat, threat to the safety of consumers does not need to be disclosed. So guess what happened? Nothing got fixed. Wow. And, you know, sure, maybe in a distant future when most cars are over-the-air updates, maybe there is a patch that can push via software. It's just not where reality is today. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, not surprising. But So I'm sure you must, after looking at this, have some must have really interesting anecdotes about and kind of bring this idea home of where this can really have an impact. And as you were talking about more people are in your car than you think, the first thing that came to my mind was valets, right? I mean, when you give some, sure. a valet the key to your car, they are you, they are the driver. It's like they're admin now in your vehicle. So at any point, while they have possession of your car, they could be pulling stuff out of it. Do you have any interesting anecdotes of stories, like real life stories where people where this has come home for somebody where the privacy has been violated, it's turned into an identity theft or uh, some other stalker issue or something like that? So two things. What we see is just the really tippy, tippy top of the iceberg. As you can imagine, law enforcement does not pursue any crime where something that wasn't absolutely horrible actually mm-hmm. happened, right? So to know how many people are being stuck today with cars is a very difficult number to put your fingers on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of indication this is not a small number. 
I can tell you, you know, two months ago, actually maybe just a month ago, there was a home invasion in New Jersey. How did it happen? Well, the criminals got in the car, they pressed the button, go home. Once they arrived there, they pressed the button, open garage. And according to the police report, they left the house with cash, electronics, and other valuables. Unfortunately, nobody was home, right? Because mm. I can only imagine right. how horrible this would have been if somebody had been home. Right. We know that there's a person right now sitting in a jail in Australia because he admitted that he was stalking his ex-girlfriend because he connected the mobile app of the car to his phone. And so he stalked her for months. And then eventually one day he mustered the courage of saying, well, let me unlock the car through my phone, got in the car, pressed the open garage door button, same thing. She woke mm -hmm. up in the middle of the night with the person sitting on her bed. And now fortunately he's in a jail. And, and how many, these are very extreme cases, which right. is why one, they get investigated and two, they make the media cycle. And, you know, the question is how often does this really happen? I, I think it's very hard. I, I can tell you, I try to do education of law enforcement multiple times a year. By and large, law enforcement agencies do not understand how the technology in cars works. What are the possible crimes you can commit? And even if they were witnessing a crime, I think it would be very hard for them to actually reconduct it to a fundamental issue that is driven by technology and vehicles. And so, again, I think that this problem is going to be underrepresented and underestimated for a long time. Right. So we're talking about kind of, you know, maybe unwanted or un realized privacy and data loss. But what about, there are some cases where we voluntarily do this. And one of them that came to my mind was insurance. Uh, there are several insurance companies that offer lower rates to better drivers. And, and the way they know you're a better driver is that you willingly give them data about your vehicle. Tell us about how some of those systems work. I, I, I think there's one that maybe hooks into that OBD port. I think there's maybe some other ones that use, you know, phone apps now. How do those systems work and what kind of information am I actually agreeing to share when I participate in those programs? Yeah, yeah. So those programs started with, uh, you know, the OBD2 port. I think that uh, everybody's familiar in the United States because there was this big ad campaign with Progressive, but there's many other companies that right. do that, right? Then it evolved into little tags that you can put in your car that have sensors and talk to your phone. And now it has become, let's just use the sensors of the phone, right? Because this way we don't have to install anything extra. Right. And it's the same thing, right? You say yes. And your second by second, sometimes millisecond by millisecond actions on the phone, on the car, et cetera, are recorded and sent back home. And yes, this allows companies to score you as a better driver or not better driver. Some of these companies actually coach you into having better habits, which I think is, is a good thing. If people know what it is that they could do to become a better driver, I think it's something that benefits all of society. But you may have signed somewhere there that they can use this data for whatever other purpose. Now, the purpose can be anything from you get into an accident, they can use that data against you, right? Mm -hmm. They can determine that you were, you know, you were distracted or whether it's true or not, right? Because they're using sensors and so they're using evidence from a right. device. And so I think that people just need to be really thoughtful about this. They can also have the right to tap into your vehicle systems to extract additional data, depending on what it is that you're agreeing to. Once they 
deemed the vehicle a total loss, again, they own the car. So they, at that point, they can do whatever forensic analysis because they own everything that is in there, right? Mm. So again, I think that this is something people, even if they don't subscribe to one of those telematics insurance, this is something anybody could be facing tomorrow morning. That you get into an accident, you sign the paper, it says, okay, send me a check. Next thing you know, you may get a dispute because they extracted data from the infotainment system and now they're challenging you. Right. So again, all of this is starting to happen at an increasing pace. And I don't think people realize this. Airplanes, due to uh, the National Transportation Safety Board, I think, and so maybe the FAA have little black boxes in them where they used to do forensic analysis after accidents or, or, or things of that nature. Do cars today have the, uh, an equivalent to a little black box with those kind of data? Or is it just kind of the amalgamation of all the other data we've been talking about that kind of effectively oh, absolutely. the same thing? Absolutely. Yeah. In, in, for your audience's uh, sake, if they want to look it up, the black box of a car is called the EDR, the Electronic Data Recorder. Originally, as we said before, right, all of these started with safety features, right? Mm -hmm. They started to equip vehicles with early, the early vehicles with airbags. They started to equip them with this. Why? Because manufacturer actually wanted to know, well, depending on the force with which uh, the vehicle is hit, from which direction was hit, did the airbag save the person or how can we make it better, right? So there was a real noble intention behind all of this and why the data was collected. Today, most cars that come out of factories do have an EDR. And there's actually an interesting law in the books in the United States called the Driver Privacy Act. For the time, it was really, really advanced, I have to tell you. It, it, this law was written in 2015. Not many people were talking about privacy, but, you know, four senators, uh, they're still sitting, you know, today hmm. in the Senate, by the way, decided that it was important to have protections around the data collected by these black boxes in cars. And they make it very clear, black and white, that whoever owns the vehicle has the right to that information. And there are a few exceptions, right? So if you are, if you get a subpoena, if it's for a matter of national security, et cetera, et cetera, right? Other companies or law enforcement may have access to it, but by and large, only the owner can have access to this data. Well, there's two issues with that law and the reason why we think it needs to be revised. The first one is that it applies to the EDR only. Oh, that's one of about 100 computers. So as I like to say, I got 99 problems. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and that's where we are at today, right? In terms of systems in cars. Specifically, it does not cover anything collected through the telematics, anything collected through the infotainment system. Those are really big systems that contain a lot of data and we think that that's problematic. The second thing is that the law says the right goes to the owner. Oh, hang on a second, right? If I'm mm. renting a car, mm. then the owner may be Hertz Enterprise, mm -hmm. whoever, right? If uh, I'm driving a fleet car, right? If my company gave me a car, the company has the right to that data. Mm. Mm -hmm. If uh, my car is at a loss, and again, I transfer the title because I'm getting a check to buy myself a new vehicle because I was not at fault in the accident. Well, guess what? Now, everything is in there, is owned by the insurance company, and then eventually once it's sold for salvage, whoever bought the vehicle for scraps that is going to disassemble and send it, they own your data. And so we think that, again, that part is problematic and should be addressed. Um, but as you know, Congress doesn't work really fast. Right. So if, if all these cars, if, I think you said 90% of vehicles today have built-in connected systems all these systems are broadcasting radio. So which is to say, and most of these things have some sort of unique identifiers associated with them. And we've talked on the show before about 
things like license plate readers and how creepy it is that they're popping up everywhere. But if my car's driving around broadcasting unique identifiers everywhere it goes, does, doesn't, doesn't that mean that I'm just just there for the stalking or for marketers or anybody else who wants to keep track of vehicles and maybe me in particular, where I visit, how long I stayed there. You know, I'm, the, I'm in the Home Depot parking lot. How often do I come to visit Home Depot? Is it just, just another way that I'm being tracked now in the real world yeah. as opposed to like cookies on the web? All that information is accessible to typically multiple companies. And actually in the case of say rental companies or fleets, it is actually also very common that they have their own aftermarket telematics installed, right? Because they want to have direct access. They don't want to have to go through the manufacturer. And so now you may have multiple tracking systems mm. running in parallel, <laughs> telling multiple companies wow. where you're going and what speed you're going, which gear you're, I mean, everything, right? About you. And and maybe you, you really don't care that a company knows if you're wearing the fourth or the fifth gear. But typically people do care. Hold on a second. You know where I drop off my kids to school? You know which right. hospital I'm my wife too. And, you know, and reality is we see this kind of information routinely in vehicles for sales. And I don't think people really would be very cool with that. Yeah. If they knew. If they knew. And that's why we're here. Um, Okay. So automated vehicles are like on the horizon. They've been telling us it's going to be any year now for years. uh, And I think they've discovered that it's a lot more difficult than they thought it was going to be. But nevertheless, you know, automated vehicles, driverless cars are, are coming. What sort of additional privacy concerns might there be with automated vehicles, either qualitatively or quantitatively? So there's two very broad school of thought here, right? So from one side, currently, in order to make cars autonomous, you need to pack more and more and more sensors, Mm -hmm. which means you will know more and more and more about the people that are inside. Okay, so that's personally the school of thought I ascribe to. I've also heard other people, for fairness, making the argument, well, hold on a second. If vehicles will be automated, it's going to be a lot harder for me to determine who was. Even if I intercepted a stream of data, it's a lot harder for me to determine Kerry was in the car mm. um, because ownership is going to go down and there's going to be a lot more sharing of vehicles. Right. Yeah. And that may provide some source of anonymity. Mm. I- I'm not really sure that that's going to provide some significant protection given the amount of data will be collected by those vehicles. Right. Uh, but, you know, for fairness, I think it's easy, it's a good thing to, to bring up. In fact, I can tell you, again, we, we do a lot of audits and we have seen also data that third parties and the third parties and the data brokers of the third parties do share. And typically it is a stream of geolocations, right? And typically there's descriptors attached to that geolocation. So once you have a series of blue dots, typically it's not very hard to find out who the owner is because guess what? The most frequent dot is the driveway of your garage. Right. So what happens is that people that live in dense cities, they have a little bit more shroud of anonymity just because many more people will be there and they may be parking in the garage that is shared by an entire building. Mm. So it's a little bit harder from just the geolocation to determine who they are. But if you live not in a densely packed city and you have your own driveway and your own parking spot, it's an easy bingo. Wow. All right. So as we get, as we wind down here, let's, let's be more hopeful. Let's, let's talk about solutions and how we can address some of these issues going forward. First of all, let's talk about the auto manufacturers. What, what do they need to be doing? And I'm sure you've been, you were consulting with some of them. What do they, what do they need to be doing to improve the situation? How do they make things better? And then how about car dealerships? What role do they play uh, in this whole scene? 
Yeah, so first of all, what I'd like to point out, and I think Sebastian misunderstood the issue, is that I personally don't think that the manufacturers are the beginning and the end of the story of privacy. And I think many consumers, and most importantly lawmakers, believe that, well, if we tell the manufacturer to have better privacy protections, we have solved the issue. Yeah. Realize that that's not a better solution than just telling, hey, Dell, Asus, whoever makes laptops, you guys need to really have good privacy so we don't have any more privacy on people surfing on the internet. That's just not the case, right? The manufacturers is no longer in full control of the data that flows in and out of the car. It is, as I said before, the centerpiece of an ecosystem, but it's far more complex than that. So it takes a lot more companies to do that. Manufacturer clearly can do a lot of things, right? From designing systems that are reducing the amount of personal information is collected at the origin. So they apply what is called privacy by default and by design. I, mm -hmm. I cannot name a single car that does that well today, frankly. Mm -hmm. yeah. To, you know, also better disclosures. It is, frankly, very hard for people to understand what data is in there. We, we spend we, a lot of time benchmarking privacy policies of companies in the automotive field. And I can tell you, for manufacturers alone, that's very confusing. Very often, by the way, you need to read multiple policies. Mm -hmm. You will have to read the general policy of the manufacturer. Then you need to read the vehicle owner's policy, which is different. Or you mm -hmm. enable the, the telematics, that's another privacy policy in, in terms of service you need to read. You download the app, that's another one, right? And so what turns out is that literally people would have to read three to four privacy policies in terms of services very often they're written in very obscure and legal language, which sure. is not easy to understand. And I think there's a lot that can be done to make this far more visible and understandable to consumers. But as I said, there's a lot more to the story, right? So for instance, we work with a lot of auto finance companies and a lot of fleet companies, and we help them set up programs where we help them create protections for the people who were driving the car, right? So... Uh, there's a number of banks, for instance, we work with when the vehicle, you know, if that vehicle is repossessed, they will actually take responsibility of deleting the data of the previous owner before the vehicle is sold. We think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. There is one company, uh, Porsche, that has probably today the most comprehensive program in terms of privacy in the United States. They actually go as far as if you lease a car and it comes back to us for as a lease return they will take care of it. Most mm. leasing companies don't do that. Mm. So if you don't pay the bills and the car is repossessed, maybe they'll take care of it. But if you're a good customer and you do pay the bills, then they think it's the customer's responsibility to do this. And reality, again, we see from the statistics that the vast majority of consumers don't know how to do it. They don't know to do it. And it gets even worse when you get to the dealerships because they have the same problem. Uh, we did a survey recently. We found out that consumers could find the personal information of the previous owner. So yeah. consumers, right? Not experts. The average person on the street test driving one or two cars of their choice at random dealerships. They could find data at 88% of those dealerships. Hmm. So that really tells you that even dealerships are not doing it. In fact, a third of those dealerships claimed, told the consumer, actually, we have a process to remove the data. We pinky swear that we do this all the time. Oops, this one must have slipped through the cracks. Well, the crack is the size of the Grand Canyon because 75% of those dealerships, people could find the personal information. So if, you, if a dealership tells you, we do this, all these things for you, 
I think it's important to trust, but also to verify. And, you know, because a lot of things are said, but not really done. Right. Oftentimes when we talk about privacy and, and data, it, it really does become confusing is like, where should the responsibility lie? And it's really easy for a lot of companies to say, well, it's on you, right? We give you the power as the as the person who quote unquote owns the data or generates the data. It's all, the power's been yours all along. Click your heels three, click your heels three times and go home, Dorothy, right? It's, you've always had the power. <laughs> but but in reality, there's way too many things to keep track of and it's, it's too hard to do. A lot of people don't do it, even if they know to do it. So, you know, in your in your view, and and we may have to you know enact regulation to enforce this, but where where should that responsibility lie? Where's the best place, from my perspective as a as a as a user generating data that I want to make sure it gets cleaned up? Where should that responsibility really lie? As with computers and phones, privacy and security it takes a village. It truly mm-hmm. does, and I I believe that informed consumers that know how to take care of their privacy is always a great thing. But reality is that the industry needs to come in and it needs to be putting in place some safety nets because assuming that people that that people will spend hours reading the privacy policy to understand what data was collected in the first place, but you can't really understand it even if you read them. And, and from there, that they know exactly what actions to take. It's just ludicrous. It doesn't happen. Right. And the evidence, the empirical evidence is that it doesn't happen. It's not enough of a protection. And so uh, good news is that consumers do have tools in their hands. Anything from asking the manufacturer, calling the manufacturers, calling the dealership, telling the rental operator as they're returning, please delete my data in front of me so I can actually verify it. All of those are accessible to just about any consumer around the world, hmm. right? So that will be a good place to start. Reality is that very often that's not sufficient. I mean, I've been the, the person that I'm in a rush to get my plane back home. Yeah, and I'm right. going to be, you know, running out of the rental as far as I can. And, right. you know, I'm not going to be spending the two minutes it takes to clear the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been that person. Before, yep, me right? too. <laughs> so I, I understand. Um, and, and reality is that fortunately, a growing number of states are giving consumers the tools to do it. Just consumers may not know about it. Right. So most states have data security laws and data breach laws and and reasonable cybersecurity laws and data privacy laws. And you can actually use those laws to request businesses to remove your data. We know that's extremely cumbersome for consumers because this is just like, you know, I don't know if you ever tried to disconnect your, you know, your cable provider and what a royal pain in the neck that is. Right. Mm -hmm. And at least you know which company you're dealing with. Now, try to do this, right, with a bunch of companies you never heard of. It's just, it's just an unsurmountable obstacle. So right. we're trying to fill it in. So um, uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, we'll just plug ourselves. We have a yep. little service that we just started for free. So I just encourage your audience to try it. And it's called Assert Your Data Rights. And if you go to our website, there's a section for consumers where you can assert your data rights. And basically, it, is, it, it does what it says it does, right? It says, look, you may have agreed for your data to be gone, but you also have the right to tell them to stop. And basically, we ask you to go and fill a form. You appoint us as the company that will take care of it. We don't use this data for any other purpose other than serving customers, serving you know consumers. So. Right. We don't sell the data to anybody. We'll share it only with the companies that we believe have your data and exclusively to tell them, just stop, just delete this data. And so I hope that some of your audience will want to give it a try. It depends on which 
region of the world they are, uh, we will be more or less successful because it depends on what laws are there. Right. But we think it's important to do it because unless consumers start telling companies that they care about their privacy and that they want their data to be respected, I don't think we can expect that companies will take the initiative. Right. Well, very often in the interviews like this, I'll ask the guests to talk about their company at the beginning of the interview, but I kind of wanted to lay the, the groundwork first because I don't think a lot of people understand the, the scope of this issue. So now that we've kind of laid that groundwork, tell us more about what Privacy for Cars is, how you guys started, and the other initiatives you guys are involved in. I know you're working with not just consumers, you're working with uh, other groups as well. Tell us about what you guys are doing now that we've kind of talked about what the problem is. Sure, happy to. So uh, I'm a automotive guy. I've been for the last 10 years, my, my previous company, we used to inspect a lot of cars, rental cars, fleets, lease returns, etc. And seven or eight years ago now, I was doing an audit and I just noticed, oh my gosh, people are leaving their home address and garage their codes. That doesn't sound good, does mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. And when we started asking people in the industry what they knew about it, nobody knew a thing about it. I mean, they may have noticed, but nobody had statistics. And as a consequence, it wasn't real. Mm -hmm. Nobody felt any responsibility over it. Right. And so the first thing we did was, okay, let's pull a, a random sample of 100 vehicles and let's see what's in there. And let's see, is it different if it's a newer or older vehicle? Is it true? You know, how is it different if it's a rental version of lease, et cetera, et cetera. And so we published the first statistics and people started to know this. And, and so they started to ask us, well, if we wanted to get rid of this data, how would we do it? And, and a lot of companies told us, well, we... This seems like an interesting problem, but it's so damn hard because there are literally tens of thousands of systems out there, mm -hmm. then we don't think we can solve it. And I just took this to heart and I thought that wasn't right. And I thought, well, if it takes boiling an entire ocean of vehicles, if that's what it takes, that's what we'll do. Mm -hmm. And so I started, this started literally as a passion project. It was never meant to be a company. And then what really happened is that CCPA, California Consumer Privacy Act passed a year and a half ago. And as part of the protection, again, consumer can request their data to be protected. And then companies start to realize, hold on a second, we have all these data security laws that apply to us, especially when we're an out-of-finance company. Every dealership in the country is an out-of-finance company, by the way, right? So they all have obligations to actually protect your data. And so they started to come to us and say, hey, can you help? And so that's when it started to move from a fun passion project to okay, maybe I actually need to hire people. This needs to become a company, a real company. Yeah. And, and, and so that's what we're doing. And actually, we've been really lucky that in the last year and a half, we've really got a, a, a lot of attention. Uh, we're now available as a service at over 350 auto auctions around the country. This is where a lot of vehicles are wholesale. Oh, wow. yeah. I think consumers don't realize that a lot of sales are really not consumer to consumer going through a dealership. They're, you know, mm -hmm. they're really businesses to businesses, right? And so... We, we have a very strong presence in the channel and we are convincing everyday new companies to go and create these protections for consumers, which we, we, I personally think it's awesome. Yeah. Again, we give away some a, a, a version of it to consumers, but we are completely redesigning the experience for consumers because right now what we give to consumers is really a simplified version of what we do for businesses. And realize consumers have different needs. First of all, they need the information, right? They yeah. need to be, they want to know what data is in my car. What mm -hmm. can I do about it? What happens if I lease a car? If is it different if I lease it from company A versus company B? And so we're literally in the process of building an entire application for consumers 
with the only purpose of educating the public. Well, what I'd love to have, I mean, like iPhone today, if I wanted to, this was one of the features that I love about Apple is if I, if I lose my phone or it's stolen, I, if it's registered properly, I could go into my iCloud account and say, delete that remotely. I can lock it and delete it. I would love to be able to do the same thing from an app on my phone. Like, oh, I, I'm going to sell this car. Or I just rented this car. I want to be able to go into some app and say, go delete all my data from that vehicle remotely. Right. And reality is that the systems in cars don't support that. They require yeah, some in, you know, in vehicle <laughs> intervention. Yeah. Uh, I think eventually we right. will go down that path. But again, the good news is that consumer can actually do the kind of the proxy of it, right? They can remotely tell us, I'd like to assert my rights. I'd like my data to be gone. And we will actually do the heavy lifting and try to figure out how we can do that. So last question before we go, What? give me some practical tips. So now that we know what we know uh, and we're more aware of this problem, as I'm going around leasing, buying, selling cars, beyond asserting my rights, which I will definitely put a link in the show notes to that, what should people be aware of and and, and how might this change their behavior? What, what, should I, what are some tips you would give to people to minimize the amount of data they're sharing with vehicles? Yeah. So first of all, I, I want to say something that's close to my heart, which is please do not not sync your phone with the hands-free because you're worried about your personal information. There's a lot of studies that show that, first of all, it's, it's not legal to take a phone call in many, in many states, so you don't want to take it. But most importantly, there's a lot of studies that show that people who do not use hands-free and keep using the phone in the car are far more likely to have an accident. Mm. So please don't do that. Okay, let's let's always make sure that we take our safety first. Mm-hmm. Then be aware that you know what's going to happen is that data will migrate into the car. So learn how to remove the data from your vehicle. If you don't know how to do it, again, you can download our app and get it for free. Or simply ask again the rental counter, the dealership, etc., to do it in front of you. Don't mm-hmm. let them take the car in the back and assure you that they will do it because again, our stats show that that doesn't happen very frequently. Mm-hmm. You could. Read your manual. I usually recommend this to people who have trouble sleeping. Um, <laughs> and I have to admit that over the years, we called manufacturers many, many times and said, hey, the instructions you're giving the manual are actually not correct, mm-hmm. or they're vague, or they're confusing. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that exactly, I have exactly zero examples in which those manuals have been redacted. So we stopped doing that because we thought it was a giant wow. waste of time. Wow. But Try to read the privacy policy of your car, at least the car you own. I know it's not easy read, but most manufacturers have the link at the very bottom of their homepage. And again, you may from there, it may take you to two or three multiple policies. But I think it's important that at least you know how complex this is. It yeah. will put the privacy policy of Facebook to shame. These policies <laughs> are far longer and far more complex oh boy. to understand. Wow. <laughs> that, that is saying something. Uh, unfortunately, it is. Yeah. All right, Andrea, this was so eye-opening, and I think a lot of people learned something today that they probably didn't even know they didn't know. So thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us all about it. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. What a fascinating discussion and a really, truly eye-opening discussion, I assume, for a lot of you. It was for me, and, I, and I'd and i been thinking about this for a while. And there's still a lot of things I learned in here that just blew my mind. And again, I, I hate to keep beating this dead horse, but it's going to have to come down to regulation. We, It's just not sufficient. It's a myth to say that you can empower the user to do this for themselves. It's just a logistical impossibility for people to understand all of the ways in which their data is being collected and used and then to provide meaningful consent. 
to try to opt out or try to limit that data. It's, 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 it's just not a viable solution. So thankfully, we've got people like Andrea and his company, Privacy for Cars, out there acting on our behalf. Uh, and in this case, potentially legally. So I want to, I'll get to that here in a minute. Uh, but he did mention a couple of things I wanted to talk about real quick in retrospect. And one was he just kind of off the cuff mentioned that one of the things that your car is gathering is the weight of the occupants. And I don't know if you caught that, but, but uh, I could see some, some people think like, huh? How? Why? Well, a lot of safety features in your car, like for instance, airbags, can be triggered or explicitly not triggered based on the weight of the person in the car seat. For example, if there's nothing in the car seat, then there's no reason for the airbag to go off. But if there's a little bit of weight, what if that is a baby in a car seat? Well, you actually don't probably want to fire the airbags in that case. And you'll probably see this if you pay attention in your car. It, you know, if you put a certain amount of weight, like let's say you put a stack of books or some groceries or something in the passenger seat, and you may see a little indicator saying, you know, the airbag has been disabled and wondered why. Well, it's my guess, and I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that in certain situations, like for instance, if you've got a baby in a car seat that weighs, you know, 30 pounds, 40 pounds or something like that, some middle amount of weight, that's probably not a full adult human, uh, that it's going to guess that, oh, I probably don't want to fire the airbag in this case. So anyway, yes, your car can, on some crude level, <laughs> figure out how much you weigh. He also mentioned the uh, auto ISAC, that's auto I-S-A-C, or the Automotive Information Sharing and Analysis Center. And real quick from their website, they what they say of themselves, they say they are an industry-driven community to share and analyze intelligence about emerging cybersecurity risks to the vehicle and to collectively enhance vehicle cybersecurity capabilities across the global automotive industry. So good guys doing good work. Uh, if you are a security researcher in any way, shape, or form, or anybody really, if you run across, as Andrea said, if you run across some data problems, some privacy issues or security issues, cybersecurity issues with your vehicle, let these guys know. That's kind of what their job is. And he mentioned the CCPA, the, Cal uh, the California Consumer Privacy uh, Act. And the cool thing about that, and that's a regulation, that regulation basically kind of enabled privacy for cars and companies like that and services like that to be your privacy agent, to like a legal agent, like you can deputize them through a series of forms and legal rights stuff, give them permission to act on your behalf. And that, you know, which is kind of a compromise to this notice and consent stuff where it's so hard for an individual to do this. But if you deputize someone to do it on your behalf, someone whose whole job it is to understand where all the places are that you could be opting out uh, and then go find them and probably automate the process, they can do all this on your behalf. Uh, and so Privacy for Cars kind of uses that dynamic. And there are other ones too. Actually, there was another company, I couldn't remember the name of it. It's a subscription, a pay for subscription service. Uh, that does this, but while looking for them, I found another one that uh, claims to be free, and I and I, I can't necessarily say that we should use this company, but it sounds good, and it's something you might want to look into, called FreeCCPAAgent.com, and uh, they've got for pay stuff too, but I think on our, even on a free level, you can basically authorize these guys to under the CCPA in every way possible opt you out of this data collection, and that's been enabled by this law. It's not where we want it to be. It's not GDPR or similar, but at least, you know, now we have the tools, the mechanisms in place to perhaps start reining in some of this data collection. 
And as Andrea pointed out, it's, you know, just by participating in these things, you have voiced your desire for privacy and it's going to raise awareness with these companies that, hey, these people do care about this stuff and maybe we should start reining some of this in or at least providing a lot better mechanisms for people to opt out or delete their data. So in particular, privacy for cars is something that you can use right now and I recommend that you do. You can go and sign up for them and deputize them to find data in cars that you may have interacted with and authorize them to work with the rental car company or the auction company or the insurance company or whoever on your behalf to delete any data, any data you may have left behind. And in fact, I have contracted with them to try to remove any potential data I may have left on that rental car in Hawaii. So uh, you would need to go to privacyforcars.com. That's the word privacy, the number four, and cars.com, and assert your data rights. Look for that link on there. And I just want to read to you a little bit from uh, from that site about what you're doing. And it says, Privacy for Cars can help you drive privacy. And I, uh, I see what you did there with the word drive. When you complete this form, we place data requests with businesses on your behalf and ask them to respect your privacy. We currently track over 200 entities who collect, share, sell, and broker vehicle data. We aim to protect you and your personal information from vehicles that you sold, rented, purchased, leased, got into an accident, have been repossessed, and more. Data breaches and theft of personal information are the number one cybercrime affecting automotive companies. By deleting your data, you can shrink your digital footprint, improve your privacy and security, and reduce the risk of identity theft, stalking, micro-targeting, and automated decision-making based on your behavior when you drive. So when you fill out the questionnaire, you know, you'll tell us a little bit about uh, the vehicle or vehicles that you want them to act on. You, you, you're going to have to give them enough information to prove that you are who you say you are. Andrea tells me that one of the main defense mechanisms or roadblocks that these companies will often throw up is, uh, you know, I don't know that you're really acting on this person's behalf. I don't know that you're really representing Kerry Parker here. I don't know that this is a legitimate request. That's the easy way for them to say, uh, uh-uh, I'm not going to do it. So you really should make sure that you give them your information so they can properly identify themselves as your agent and that they are working on your behalf, which means giving them your real name, giving them your real address, giving them their real daily use email address, or at least whatever email address that that rental car company or whoever would know you by. So they can have legitimacy when they go to act on your behalf. Now, a lot of this is probably, I'm not sure what the limitations are in terms of whether or not you have to be a California resident. Some of this stuff will bleed outside of California just because a lot of these companies will now open this ability up to people who are non-California residents because it's harder to try to do both. So if you're not a California resident, you may have limited luck here, but I would still recommend you do it to, again, unequivocally state for the record that you care about your privacy and that you support companies and efforts like Privacy for Cars to help rein in this data and take some measure of control over your right to privacy. All right, one more quick thing before we go. Uh, as always, I, I promise to read your reviews on the air if you post them. Uh, I got a really great book review, uh, five out of five stars on Amazon. Thank you so much. And they say, truly for everyone. For context, I have worked and played in the information security and data analysis field for nearly 20 years with various industry certs and war stories. This is the first book I recommend to anyone who asks me questions like, should I use a credit monitor? Or how do I stop all this spam in my email? Frankly, answers to those could range from yes to change your email provider to a fully encrypted service and use individual addresses for everything. 
There needs to be a middle ground for those who want a bit more than a brush off and a bit less than an off the grid campaign. This book fills that need and is readable and applicable by anyone from grandma on her iPhone to the Java coder buddy who runs an app startup. Very simple yet hugely effective means of protecting your digital privacy like two-factor authentication and password managers are explained in clear language, often with pictures for people like me. Even more advanced concepts like cloud services and how your home Wi-Fi router works are translated to plain speak for everyone's benefit. Wonderful review and detailed review. Thank you so much for that. They really make a huge difference. They really do. And it's, it's really good to have a steady stream of new ones coming in as well to have fresh reviews. So again, thank you so much for that, whoever wrote that review. And as I see these things pop up on Amazon or iTunes, I will read them on the air as my little way of saying thank you. All right, that's going to do it this week, folks. Uh, we got another news show again next week. Plenty to talk about there. There have been some other kind of hot issues that have popped up. Again, I would recommend you follow me on Facebook and Twitter. That's kind of where I post, you know, hot tips like there's a bug, nasty bug right now. Here's how you fix it kind of stuff. So on Twitter, I'm at Firewall Dragons. And on Facebook, I think you just look up Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, you'll find it. If you go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, and look off to the right, all my social media icons are there. You can use those to find them as well. I will put links to Privacy for Cars and the link to asserting your data rights, a link to the auto ISAC guys, and more in the show notes. So check those out. And I got more great interviews working in the background. Lots of fun stuff coming up. So subscribe if you have not already done so, so you don't miss an episode. You can also check out my newsletter and blog on firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and, of course, the book on Amazon. Take care, everybody. Get those shots. Help others get their shots. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.